Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. The crucifixion of Jesus was undoubtedly the single worst day in the history of humanity. On the other hand, the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross was the single greatest event that has ever occurred in the history of the world. Therein lies the paradox of the cross. I want us to think for a few moments about what is recorded by Matthew in chapter 27. We look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as John, and we have insight into the crucifixion of Jesus. And there are a lot of things that come to mind as we focus on this subject. I want to begin by talking for a moment or two about the horrible cruelty of the cross. As I think about the cruelty of the cross that Jesus experienced, I'm reminded of the indignity of the cross. And Paul addressed that in Galatians chapter 3 at verse 13 when he said that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. For it is written, he said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus suffered for us. And we need to see that. He experienced the indignity of the cross for us. I want to call attention for a moment or two about the trial that occurred prior to the cross. If you go back and look at verse 26 of chapter 27, Matthew narrates some of the things that occurred to Jesus during the trial. First, in verse 26, he tells us that Jesus was scourged. Here's what he says. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The scourge was a terrible form of punishment. Scholars and historians state that they would take a whip. Attached to that whip might be fragments of bone or metal, and they would literally lacerate the back of the victim, the person who was undergoing the scourge would be stripped to the waist. And that whip would not only affect the back, but the legs as well. No doubt a great loss of blood would occur during this whipping. Historians indicate that a person's back would literally be laid bare. Sometimes the tissue would be so mangled 
that bones could be seen. Not only was Jesus scourged, but the Bible tells us he was stripped. Verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Let me just pause here for a moment. As we think about the indignity of the cross, you have to understand that not only was Jesus scourged, but they mocked him. They stripped him of his garments and placed, as Matthew tells us, a scarlet robe on him. You see, Jesus was the king of the Jews. All of this was done in mockery. Verse 29 tells us that they sneered at him. When they had, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. You can just imagine the contempt with which these actions were carried out by the Roman soldiers. Verse 30 tells us that they spat on him. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him in the head. Not only did they spit upon the Son of God, but they struck him in the head. In verse 31, Matthew tells us when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. The scenes that are before you, based on the account written by Matthew, paint a picture of the Son of God prior to the cross. You have to understand that the events that took place on that occasion, those events took place with you in mind. And then we think about the tribulation of the cross itself. In verse 32, the Bible tells us that as they came out, they found a man of serene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, the place of the crucifixion or the cross was Golgotha, the place of the skull. Some would say that the place where Jesus was crucified resembled that of a human skull. Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 33, that when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors are thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. I want you to think for a moment or two about the pain of the crucifixion of the cross. Historians state that in 1968, a victim was found that had been crucified in Jerusalem, or he was found in Jerusalem. A seven-inch spike was found in his heel. Imagine, if you can, having spikes welded 
into your wrist and then into the heel. Some would say that the art of crucifixion was perfected by the Romans. They were no doubt a cruel group of people. And Jesus underwent the indignity of the cross for us. The pain he experienced was for us. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus Christ suffered for us. The Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. He was put to death on Calvary for our sins. There's a second thing that I want to call attention to for just a moment or two, and that is the hazing or howling crowd at the cross. What you and I need to see as we look to Matthew's account of the cross, the insults that were hurled at the Son of God. Now, as you go back and you look at the scene from Matthew's perspective, I'm not sure if there was anything more insulting than for the Son of God to be scourged, stripped, sneered at, spat upon, and slapped. But the, the insults, well, they were something. There were two basic questions posed at the foot of the cross. Number one, as we look at Matthew's account, we find they questioned his sonship. Note, if you would, verse 38. In verse 38, the Bible says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. And then look if you would. Note what is said in verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. What were they doing? They were questioning his sonship. Now, if you look at the gospel narratives, first of all, there was an endorsement of his deity. Who endorsed the deity of Jesus? God the Father did. In Matthew chapter 3, we read of Jesus coming to John the Immerser at the Jordan River and wanting to be baptized by John. And the Bible tells us that Jesus said, that it was to fulfill all righteousness. Following his baptism, the Bible says that a voice came forth from heaven 
And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In chapter 17 of Matthew, you recall Jesus was transfigured on a mountain. Peter, James, and John were present. Again, a voice came forth from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then God said, hear him. So you have an endorsement of his deity. When Jesus claimed to be the son of God, he was telling the truth. Not only was there in an endorsement of his deity, but there was evidence of his deity. Jesus would say in John chapter five, verse 36, that the very works that he did, he said those works testified that the Father had sent him. Now we talk about the message of Jesus. Peter had enough understanding to realize that the words that Jesus spoke, that they were the words of life in John chapter six. But what about the miracles? The miracles authenticated the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be. In other words, they, they gave evidence or testimony to the fact that he was the son of God. Go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And note the abundance of miracles that were performed. You remember what John said in chapter 20? Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. The signs that are recorded in scripture are recorded for us so that we might draw the conclusion that, hey, this is the son of God. The signs that Jesus performed in the first century, they were done so that people might conclude, hey, this is the son of God. This is not an ordinary man. And then there's a second thing. Not only did they question his sonship, they questioned his sovereignty or his power. Note if you would verse 40. In verse 40 again, they said, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Here were people questioning the sovereignty or the power of Jesus. Now I want to ask you a question. Did Jesus have the ability to come down from the cross? I mean, they were taunting him. They said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe it. Could he have come down from the cross? You know the answer. Yes. He could have come down from the cross. There are two reasons, I believe, why Jesus did not come down from the cross. Number one, he did not come down from the cross because of you and me. Jesus stayed on the cross because he understood that in order for us to have life, redemption, 
forgiveness, hope, he had to remain on the cross. Let me tell you what, it was not, it was not nails that kept him on that cross. The only thing that kept him on that cross was you and me. Jesus tasted death for every man. That's what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 2, verse 9. The Son of God stayed on that cross despite the taunting and the abuse. He stayed there for us. There's a second reason why I believe Jesus stayed on the cross. And that was because of his Father, God the Father. Before the foundation of this world was ever laid, God had a plan in place. That plan was to redeem the human family. John said that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When Jesus came to this earth, he came with a heaven-sent mission. He was not about to abort that mission for himself. He had enough love for us and his father that he stayed on that cross. In John chapter 4, Jesus would say, my work is to do the will of him who sent me, to finish his work. In John 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the Father. In John 17, 5, Jesus said, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus understood that God's plan of redemption rested on his shoulders and he was not about to let God the Father down. There's a third thing I want you to see in our study and that is the hopeful cause of the cross. What about the intent of the cross? First, the darkness of sin. Note if you would in verse 45. Matthew said, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. From 12 p.m. until 3 p.m., the world was covered in darkness. The land was covered in darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Listen to what he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we talk about the darkness of sin, number one, you need to understand that Jesus was our substitute for sin. When he went to the cross, he went with you in mind. If we were to jettison back in history 2,000 years, you need to understand that Jesus paid the price for you and me. Peter said that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. For it was by his stripes that we are healed. Jesus Christ suffered and died vicariously. In other words, he took our place. If you go back and look at verse 32, the Bible tells us that they compelled a man by the name of Simon of Serene to bear his cross. Let me tell you what, Jesus did not have a cross. The cross that he bore was our cross. We were the ones worthy of death. And yet Jesus took our place. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think again about what Peter said. He bore our sins on the tree, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. Not only was he our substitute for sin, but he was separated because of our sin. In verse 46, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We talk about the events that took place on Calvary and we, take, we talk about the events that occurred and the blackness associated, the darkness associated with sin. I want you to think for a moment or two, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John were with him on that occasion. And he would pray, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What do you think? What do you think Jesus thought about the cross in terms of the suffering? Well, from a human perspective, I don't think he wanted to suffer any more than we do. But I think that when you look at Jesus dying on Calvary, the thing that bothered him above all other things was the fact that because of our sin, he would be separated from the Father. Something that had never before occurred. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on, on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. It shouldn't be lost on us that darkness covered the earth or covered the land for three hours. How symbolic that was of the sin he bore for us. And then the deliverance from sin. In verse 50, the Bible says, Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. It was Jesus who said, it is finished. He would say during his earthly ministry, he had the power to lay down his life and to take it again. He had received that commandment from his father. When Jesus died on Calvary, the price for sin was paid. It was paid in full. We need to understand that. It was paid in full. The price for your sins have been paid in full. Nothing lacking. The Bible says that Jesus redeemed us. In Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. I want you to think about the benefits and the blessings of Jesus going to the cross for your sins. He paid the debt for sin. He paid your debt, a debt you could not pay, a debt only his blood could satisfy. And then what about the provisions for sin that have been promised? Does Jesus not want us to avail ourselves of the benefits and the blessings of his blood? Yes. I can't imagine, 
why anyone would turn their back on the benefits and blessings available through the death of Jesus. The paradox of the cross is reflected in the fact that, yes, it was the single worst day in the history of the world. But it was also the single greatest day in the history of the world because through his death, we have hope. I want to ask you this morning, when it comes to the cross and the price that has been paid for your sin, have you taken advantage of what Jesus has done for you? Sometimes maybe we miss the personal touch of the cross. Let me tell you, Jesus went to the cross for you. God spared his only begotten son for you. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, for God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all freely. Please do not let the death of Jesus be in vain. Do not step outside this world into eternity having never taken advantage of the death and the benefits of Jesus' blood. Millions are stepping out into eternity without hope. You don't have to be numbered among them. The Bible tells us God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If you're going to be saved, then you've got to do it according to what the Bible says. Number one, Jesus is the only one that can save. The Lord said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name of the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. How do you become a child of God? Here's what the Bible says. Number one, you need to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's the son of God. You've got to develop a heart of faith, and that faith comes by hearing the word. If you'll read and you'll study and you'll examine the evidence, your conclusion will be he's the son of God. He's who he claimed to be. And then you've got to repent. You've got to turn from a life of sin. Jesus said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you'll do that, there's no doubt in my mind that you would be willing to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that he is the son of God. Acts 8 verse 37. The Bible says, then you must be baptized into Christ. The reason you're baptized into Christ is, is so that you can contact the blood of Christ. Jesus shed his blood in death, John 19, 34. The only way you can access the blood of Jesus is by being baptized into him, Romans 6, 3 and 4. When you do that, you contact the blood of Christ and you become a recipient of all the benefits and favors that are in Christ Jesus. You become a recipient of the spiritual blessings afforded only in Christ. And then you have to be faithful until death. And if you'll live a faithful life until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2 at verse 10. So as we think about the cross, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And when we stand and sing, I want you to think about your spiritual relationship to the Lord. Here are the possibilities. Number one, all is well with your soul. You're in Christ. You're living for him. You're faithful. You're doing your best. The other possibility is you've never obeyed the gospel. You've never been baptized into Christ. 
If that's the case, you're lost. Somebody needs to love you enough to tell you that you're lost. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. You stand condemned. If the world were to come to a crashing end at this hour, you would be lost forever. The third possibility is that you're in Christ, but you're not where you ought to be spiritually. You're not faithful. You haven't been living for him on a daily basis. You haven't been trying to live the Christian life. You've gone back into the world. Peter said, if that's your case, the latter end is worse than the beginning. It would have been better for you not to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it, turn from the holy commandment delivered unto you. What I'm saying is you're in trouble. You're not going to be saved in that condition. You need to come home. Why not let us pray with you and for you? Why not make it right today? Why leave here? Taking the chance that by the end of the week, you'll be in eternity. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love